Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. An encounter with Jesus is life-changing. Some encounters with Jesus, some face-to-face eyewitness encounters were deeply meaningful and spiritual and comforting, and some were not. And the same remains true to this very day. You may have an encounter with Jesus which you find deeply reassuring, soul-comforting, A dawning of hope rises within you because of that encounter. It could be that you've been walking through the dark valley, the shadow of death, and then you have the sense that Jesus comes alongside and you are not alone. That's an encounter with Jesus. But there are other kinds of encounters. Encounters just as real, just as authentic, but rather than being reassuring and comforting, they're disturbing, distressing. That encounter gnaws at the edges of your conscience. It's a hard knot in the pit of your stomach. It's the night when you can't sleep, the day when you can't focus your thoughts. Because of that encounter, you intuitively know there is something you have to do, something you have to change, a decision you have to make. It's an encounter with Jesus, all right, but it's not reassuring. It was the same in the world of Jesus. When people had face-to-face encounters with him, some reassuring, some disturbing. So we begin today a journey of eyewitness encounters, firsthand stories from the passion of Christ. On this journey to Calvary, we're going to listen, we're going to linger, we're going to learn. We'll stand outside the cell of the criminal Barabbas and try to understand what his encounter meant. We will watch with wonder the intersection of those two pathways, Jesus and Simon of Cyrene. We will stand in a graveyard, in a cemetery, and watch two well-clad, richly robed, wealthy men as they prepare Jesus' body for burial. It won't be long before we're back at that grave again, watching as Mary Magdalene literally trembles, shakes in awe at what seems to have happened there. And later that day, we'll listen in on two disciples. We only know the name of one, Cleopas. But we'll listen on two disciples as they talk about a stranger who joined them and then suddenly wasn't a stranger anymore. Eyewitness. We'll listen, we'll linger, 
will learn. But today we begin with Caiaphas, ruthless eyewitness. Caiaphas. All kinds of encounters with Jesus, some reassuring, some not. His most certainly was not. Caiaphas was the high priest. He was the son-in-law to Annas, who is also called the high priest. The family of Annas cast a long and a very dark shadow over the priesthood. Consider this. Annas was high priest. Every single one of his five sons were high priest at one point in time or another. And now his son-in-law Caiaphas was high priest. Do you think that was a powerful family? In fact, I want to read you some words about the family of Annas from the New Testament scholar Robert Mounts, who writes this about Annas and his family. The crafty nature of Annas and his practice of demanding exorbitant prices for sacrificial animals sold on the temple grounds are well known. The shops in the temple were called the bazaars of Annas. A passage from the Talmud reads as follows, Woe is me because of the house of Hanim, family of Annas. Woe is me because of their whisperings, their secret conclaves to devise oppressive measures. That Jesus should first be taken to the one who was in control of the ecclesiastical power structure is not surprising. Annas would take personal delight in seeing the one who had attacked his vested interest by cleansing the temple, now bound and being brought to, quote, justice, close quote. Annas, powerful Annas. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that because his father-in-law Annas was powerful that Caiaphas was not. Caiaphas, too, was very powerful. In fact, here's where a bit of history might be of help. In that period of time between the two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New, there was a great deal of political maneuvering, a great deal of scheming and of working behind the scenes in so far as the priesthood was concerned. In fact, the priesthood, the high priesthood, was increasingly secularized. Till by the time we reach the period and the person of Caiaphas, it bore little resemblance to what God had intended it to be, a deeply spiritual appointment, a lifetime appointment of a person who would serve God. In fact, this is where Eugene Peterson can help us understand a bit of what Caiaphas would have been like. Listen to Peterson's words. By the time Caiaphas became high priest in A.D. 18, there was little concern for God among the tightly knit Jerusalem Sadducean priesthood. They were wealthy and powerful, thoroughly Hellenized and cozy with the Romans. Their wealth came from the temple. They ran the temple and had a monopoly on the temple sacrifices and the temple taxes. The Romans let them do it because they depended upon them to keep the peace. Caiaphas must have been better at what he did than most. Herod was appointed king by Rome in 37 BC. He immediately brought in an undistinguished priest from Babylon, Ananel, to serve as high priest, a priest he could keep in his back pocket. 
Herod downgraded the office of high priest to a bureaucratic desk job to eliminate any possible rivalry to his rule. From 37 B.C., the beginning of Herod's rule, to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, there were 28 high priests. The average tenure was a little over three years. Caiaphas held the office for 18 years. Leaders survived in those days by getting along well with Rome. Caiaphas, working in partnership with his father-in-law Annas, expertly cultivated the Roman connection. As a result, Caiaphas lived pretty high on the hog, making a good living out of religion. That's Caiaphas, ruthless witness, an eyewitness to Jesus. Now, the gospel accounts only record four scenes where Caiaphas is explicitly named. It doesn't mean that he's named just once in those scenes. There are four scenes in which his name appears, though. The first one comes in Luke 3, where Luke is simply naming a list of people in religious and political office. He's trying to identify the date for the beginning of the work of John the Baptist. And so he names these different people who are in office, thus giving the reader the opportunity, the ability to be able to pinpoint when John began his ministry. Caiaphas's name appears in that list. That's his first appearance. His fourth appearance, don't worry, I haven't forgotten the middle two, his fourth appearance comes later also in the writings of Luke in the book of Acts, chapter 4. Peter and John have healed a lame man at the gate of the temple, and the Sanhedrin calls them to account for their continued preaching in the name of Jesus. And Luke lists some of the men present in that day in the Sanhedrin trying Peter and John, and among the names on that list is, you guessed it, Caiaphas. That's his fourth appearance. We are interested today in the middle two appearances, both in John, although Matthew also records one of them. So we're going to go to John's Gospel, the 11th chapter. Now let me set, me, let me set the context. Allow me to give the situation and the circumstance as it exists before we read the passage. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. It is a stunning sign. Many have witnessed it. Many are thoroughly amazed. They don't even know what to say. A man dead four days, raised from the dead. Jesus, his star already on the rise, is now at the height, at the height of the wave of popularity. As such... He's a grave threat to the establishment. So as people rally around Jesus, as people rally around Lazarus, this dead man now alive, the Sanhedrin gathers asking the question, what exactly are we going to do? What are we going to do with this itinerant preacher, healer? So that's our passage, John, the 11th chapter. I begin reading in verse 45. John writes, 
Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. You can hear what they're saying. They're saying, we are hovering here beneath the dangling sword of Damocles. It's a sharpened, two-edged sword. One edge, razor sharp, is Rome. We just read from Peterson the agreement that exists between Rome and the priestly class, the high priests specifically. You keep the peace, says Rome. You keep people in control and we'll allow you to line your pockets, to make your living, to experience your power in your religion in Jerusalem. But you let things get out of control and we will deal forcefully with you. That's one razor-sharp edge of that sword of Damocles. The other razor-sharp edge is their own people. Their own people who have become increasingly enraptured with Jesus. Not only with his teaching, not only with the portrait that he paints of God, though they are deeply drawn to that, but with the signs he is performing. A dead man raised four days in the tomb? And the ruling class, the priestly class, the Sanhedrin knows if we try to stop him now, we will be overrun with a riot by our own people and that sword dangles. What should we do? That's an encounter with Jesus that is not comforting. It's not reassuring. While they're lingering over that question, trying to sort through what the possibilities might be, what might possibly exist, enter Caiaphas, the high priest. I'm the leader. I'll speak up. I'll tell you what we should do. Back to John, the 11th chapter. This time, verse 49. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. It's a tight-fisted, bare-knuckled, chest-thumping speech. It's a fight speech. It comes straight out of Caiaphas's power base, his anger, the fact that it's being threatened. And the words reveal his attitude even toward his colleagues on the Sanhedrin. You don't know anything. You're ignorant imbeciles. What's wrong with you? 
Don't you realize, says Caiaphas, that everything we have is being threatened? Our very way of life is about to be, be blown apart. Everything that we hold dear could disappear because of this one itinerant hick from the backwater town of Nazareth. You don't know anything. You have to realize we must act. And then he throws down the gauntlet. We'll kill him. It's excusable, Sanhedrin members, because common sense tells you that having one person die rather than the whole nation get wiped out is far better. So let's deal with him. And then our way of life, all that we gain because of the temple, will be safe. That's Caiaphas. He's having to make a choice. He would never have articulated it this way, but it's clear that even Caiaphas recognizes that in the throne of the soul, on the throne of the heart, there is only room for one. His encounter, his eyewitness encounter with Jesus tells him he's going to have to choose. And Caiaphas makes clear it won't be Jesus. We'll deal with him. And his chance will come. His speech so galvanizes the Sanhedrin. The threat looms so large over Jesus that Jesus has to withdraw for a period of time and not show his face in Jerusalem. It won't be long, just a few chapters in John, but not that many days in real life before Caiaphas will actually have his chance. He will be able to carry out that plan about which he spoke with the Sanhedrin. It comes over in, in John 18. In John 18, Jesus is arrested. This will now be the third appearance of Caiaphas in the gospel record. So let's read the germane verses in John's gospel, the, the verses where Caiaphas makes an appearance. John 18, starting with verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leader that it would be good if one man died for the people. So they arrest him. Take him to Annas. Now verse 19, same chapter. Meanwhile, the high priest, in this case it's referring to Annas, Questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I have always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied. Testify as to what is wrong, but if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? 
Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And finally, verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Here in John's Gospel, it seems that Caiaphas's role is muted. It's not as prominent. It seems that Annas takes the front seat. But if you look at the same scenes over in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew is very clear on the role Caiaphas played, and he has not been defanged or declawed. Because Matthew will tell us that Caiaphas questions Jesus with strident words. He says to him, what about these charges? What about everything that everybody is saying? And Jesus stands silent. This appears to enrage Caiaphas. Finally, filled with fury, he stands to his feet. He jabs his finger in the face of the itinerant preacher, and he says, I charge you, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us, are you the Messiah, the Son of God, or not? To that, Jesus responds, self-possessed, he replies, you have said it, but I will tell you that henceforth you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that does it for Caiaphas. He will never allow this itinerant preacher from a backwater town speak in that way. So he does something explicitly prohibited to the high priest. He grabs his priestly robes and he rips them in two in a show of his holy horror. Underline the word show. Because that's what it is. Screaming at the Sanhedrin, he says, Why do we need any further witnesses? You've heard it from his own lips. What is your judgment? And they shout, Death! And his fate is sealed from the perspective of of the religious leaders. Pilate is yet to come. Rome has yet to weigh in, but they will rubber stamp this decision. We know that from the Gospel of Matthew. But in John's Gospel, first to Annas, and then bound to Caiaphas, and then early the next morning, bound to Pilate. So John makes it clear. 
Jesus will spend the night at the home, the palace really, of Caiaphas. We ought to take note of that. Any of you who have had the privilege of journeying to Jerusalem have no doubt been to the home, the palace of Caiaphas. It's a beautiful structure. Now understand, it is not the structure that stood at the time, although that structure too was reportedly ornate and beautiful. But there are two elements in that palace that almost certainly date from the day of Christ. The first is the stone stair steps outside the palace that lead down into the Kidron Valley that will then lead up to the temple grounds. Almost certainly, those are the stones up which the mob pushed Jesus on their way to the palace of Caiaphas. Those are the stones down which the leaders will push Jesus early in the morning of the next day on their way to the palace of Pilate. Sacred stairway. But there's a second element of that palace that certainly dates to the time of Jesus, and that's what's beneath it. Underneath it are rooms chiseled out of stone, cave-like. Those would not have been unusual in a wealthy home of the day. After all, it was much cooler there. There in a pre-refrigerator world, you could store drink or, or food for much longer keeping. There you could stash prisoners like Jesus. There is a pit beneath that palace. Would have been dark as midnight on that night, and it is believed that that pit in the palace of Caiaphas is where Jesus spent the bulk of that night. You can descend into that pit. It's lit now. You can stand as a sense of silence descends upon you, solemnity, holy pit. But as you experience it, you can almost feel its cold, clammy, Grip. Can sense the darkness. And you can understand why pilgrims who visit read Psalm 88 
thought to have been quoted by Jesus there that night. The only psalm in the hymn book of ancient Israel that begins dark and ends darker. No praise, no light in it at all. In fact, it ends with the statement, the darkness is my closest friend. And you can envision already broken and battered Jesus. Caiaphas has had his eyewitness encounter. He has had to make his decision. Either Caiaphas or Christ. On the throne room, on the throne of your soul, in the throne room of your heart, there is only room for one. So Caiaphas has banished Jesus to the basement. What about you? You will have an encounter with Jesus. That encounter may be comforting, reassuring, soul-affirming, give you a dawn of hope in a dark time. I pray that it will be. But friend, if you know Caiaphas well, if you've made choices such as Caiaphas made, Jesus is a threat. A threat to your way of life. A threat to your will, to your choices. To holding on to things done your way. You'll have to choose. On the throne room of my heart, Caiaphas or Christ. You remember the statement Caiaphas made back in that second appearance, right? With the Sanhedrin, when he said, <laughs> It's better that one man die than that the whole nation perish. Immediately on the heels of that statement, John makes an editorial comment. The, the words are still lingering on the lips of Caiaphas. Better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. And then John says this, John 11, 51. He did not, Caiaphas did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. You know what that says to me? It says you have a choice. Who will sit on the throne room of your on the throne of your heart? Who will occupy the throne room of your life? If you choose Jesus, 
He will do much with you and through you and in you and by you. But if you choose the way of Caiaphas, it may not happen with you, but it will never stop the work of God in the world. He is still about the process of bringing us together as one in Jesus. I think Eugene Peterson outlines the two ways as best as it could possibly be outlined. Listen to Peterson's words. Given the prominence of the way of Caiaphas, Jesus needed to make sure that his own followers did not misunderstand what was involved in following him. Following Jesus is not a path to privilege. It is not a way to get what you want. It is not the inside track to a higher standard of living. In both Judaism and the church, there have always been a lot of people who expect everything to turn out wonderfully when they commit themselves to God's ways, worship faithfully, study their Bibles, witness to their friends, and give generously. But it is in following Caiaphas that you get that kind of life, not following Jesus. Jesus makes that explicit when he says, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross. So you encounter Jesus today. You have to choose the way of Caiaphas, the way of Christ. The throne of your heart only has room for one. It's your decision.